chapter 17, verses 20 to 26. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may come, may be one as our Father art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou givest me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Father, I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee, and these have known that thou hast sent me. And I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them. And we know that the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word. Amen. Thanks, Andrew, in the choir. Let's pause together in prayer. Let's pray. Lord God, we need you in every hour of every day. Without your presence and power at work within us, we have no help, no hope. Meet with us now and speak to us through your word. Guide our steps to glorify you with our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It was uh, 1997, about 18 months before I arrived as minister in Second Randallstown Church, when there was an arson attack on St. Magnissi's Roman Catholic Church and the building was destroyed. And as a result of this, there was a local initiative launched to try and help children appreciate and respect the traditions of uh, their local congregations and their buildings. And so one day, the upper classes of Mount St. Michael's Catholic Maintained Primary School trudged their way through Randallstown, and they came into the pews and sat before me in the building of Second Randallstown. And I began to explain to them where they were. They were in a Presbyterian church building. But on their way to this particular Presbyterian church, they had passed on their left-hand side that beautiful old basalt-built building, old congregation, O.C. Randallstown, the oldest Presbyterian church in the town. And then I told them if they had have taken a left turn and gone up New Street, just opposite the library, they could have seen... First Randallstown Presbyterian Church, which bizarrely is the newest, youngest church in the town. And then I explained that if they'd gone up Church Road and up that little bit on the right-hand side, they'd have found the free Presbyterian Church, which is absolutely nothing to do with the other Presbyterian churches in the town. And so on went my explanation. And as these words were coming out of my mouth, I realized that they were mildly amusing in that the first Presbyterian church is the third church to be built and so on, but really that this was a terrible tragedy. 
in that those who profess Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord should so disregard his will for us to be one. The reason why there are three Presbyterian churches in Randallstown is not because some great vision to plant new congregations. No, it's because we couldn't get on together. And so we had to make more. This morning we turn to that portion of John 17 that Anne read for us. The high priestly prayer of Jesus. The true Lord's Prayer, the verses or the the words that Jesus prayed just before his arrest and being taken for execution. Jesus was not caught off guard. He knows what was unfolding before him. He knew the very precise timing of all that was happening and so he prayed. And if anything, that would make these words that we consider together all the more significant. These were his last lengthy prayer recorded for us. And Jesus had three main topics in this prayer. Jesus prayed for himself that once again he might receive the glory that was his rightful possession. And as he, through loving, sacrificial service of his Father, gave himself to death upon the cross, he would bring glory to the God of heaven. Secondly, he prayed for his disciples, that in their mission, in their ministry, without him, they might be secure, they might be sent, and they might be sanctified, that they would be in the world, but not of the world. And finally, Jesus prays. For us. He prays for the church in every generation. He prays for all who would come to believe in Jesus through the preaching of the gospel. And his prayer is simple and pointed that Christians, those who profess his name, would be one, and that those who are his would be with him to be where he is. In the worship of the tabernacle and temple, in the ornate robes that were worn by the high priest, he would carry on his breastplate the the names of the tribes of Israel. They would be over his heart as he entered the most holy place to bring his worship to God. And here our high priest, Jesus, as he comes before his father, carries our names on his heart. He prays for us. How amazing that is to think that the last thing that he did before his arrest, before the fiasco of his trial and the horror of his execution, Jesus prayed for you. He prayed for me. And he prayed that we might be one. That we might be one. We have to acknowledge this harsh reality, this tragic truth that there is no one who takes the name of Christ in vain, like those who would claim to be his followers and yet who persist in and indeed foment disunity. We are called to be one, and that call cannot be dismissed. We we cannot file that at the bottom of our ecclesiological to-do list. 
If we get round to it someday, we might find a way to be one. Jesus prays that that might be our reality. We need to think about how that might be attained. And the first thing we need to understand is that such a unity must be transcendent. Transcendent. Note verse 21. Jesus prays that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. How are we to be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you? When Jesus speaks about the unity of the church, he's not just talking about sort of a polite conversation that you might have at a dinner party. No, he's praying that we might experience the same intimacy and intensity of relationship that's been shared with Father, Son, and Spirit throughout all eternity. The earliest Christian theologians, when they were trying to picture how the Godhead in three persons operated, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they used this this lovely phrase, perichoresis. It, it, It refers to the interwoven, mutual indwelling of nature of the Trinity. It's sometimes called the divine dance as Father, Son, and Spirit are hard to distinguish. And Jesus allows us repeatedly to see glimpses of that topic as he records for us here in John's Gospel. John 14, verse 7, verse 9, verse 11, John 10, verse 30. We we hear these words from his lips. He says, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. I am in the Father and the Father is in me. I and the Father are one. Perhaps you could think of that old sort of film cliche where the sniper is trying to line up the target in his crosshairs and uh, unfortunately the, the, the target, the individual he's trying to hit is, is moving in a crowd and he, and he exclaims over the radio, I can't get a clear shot, I can't get a clear shot. In a sense, that's the Trinity. You, you can't get a clear shot at a member of the Trinity because it's impossible to tear them apart and to identify them individually. You cannot speak of one without regard to the others. They are too tightly bound together to make that allowable. And so Jesus prays that that same Trinitarian unity would be the experience of all of God's people in this generation and in every church that bears his name. The only way to make sense of this is to understand that the source of such a unity must be heavenly and not earthly. It must not be natural, but be supernatural. It must be of God and not from the efforts of men. It must be transcendent if that unity is to be real and lasting. Significantly, we have to understand it cannot be, it must not be of men. You know what happened whenever there was this great attempt, this great project at man-made unity. It happened at the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. And there, verse 7, we uh, are given a little insight into this Trinitarian conversation in heaven as God looks upon these events and says, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. 
and nothing that they purpose to do will now be impossible for them. Now, whatever your views on Brexit, the forthcoming general election, or a power-sharing Stormont executive, you need to understand that if people come together and commit to work together without the glory of God being their ultimate objective, yes, there is incredible potential in human cooperation, but it is never a potential that leads to good. If we are to be as one, it must never be because we have determined to be one by force of will. Such determinations throughout the ages have brought the greatest evil in human history. The only way that this can be appropriately achieved is if the enabling source and the motivating power is transcendent. If it's by the presence and by the power of God at work in our midst. Let me illustrate it this way. You remember how the disciples were faced with this very difficult problem. They were in the wilderness. They were accompanied by 5,000 now hungry people. And Jesus gives them a, a real opportunity to learn. He said, you give them something to eat. Mark 6, 37. In effect, Jesus said to them, you have to do what you can't do with what you don't have. Sounds simple, doesn't it? But how was the situation resolved? Well, we all know. The disciple, at Jesus' instruction, gave the little bit that they had to him into his hands. And what they could not do and did not have was no longer a problem. The crowd was fed and there was an abundance left over. That's what God calls us to do. Let me give another illustration. During World War II, Hitler commanded that all the religious communities in Germany should unite as one so that he could manipulate them and control them as he willed. And when things are manipulated by human will, it's never good. And among the brethren assemblies, half complied with Hitler's demands and half refused to comply. And those who went along with his uh, determination had a reasonably comfortable existence. But for those who said no, they refused to unite in this church directed by Hitler, they faced fierce persecution. There was hardly a family among them where at least one person had not died in a concentration camp. And when the war was over, Feelings of bitterness ran deep between both sides, and there was huge tension within that denomination. And finally, they they, they realized that this problem had to be remedied. So the leaders from each of the groups met together for a quiet retreat. For several days, each person spent time in prayer, examining their own hearts in the light of, of Jesus' commands. And then they came together. Francis Schaeffer, who records this incident or tells of this incident, asked a friend who was present, he said, and what did you do then? And his friend replied, we were just one. We were just one. 
as they confessed their hostility and bitterness before God, as they yielded their lives to his control and authority, miraculously, the work of the Spirit created a unity among them. God did what they could not do with what they did not have. His love filled their hearts and dissolved the hatred that fractured them. When God-given love prevails among believers, when he pours out his love by his Holy Spirit into our hearts, as he promises to do, a transcendent unity is evidenced. And, And that's particularly clear in times when we might otherwise strongly disagree. When people see unity of purpose, even when there are divergent opinions, this is evidence to the watching world that God is truly among us, that we are indisputably followers of Jesus Christ, because only he could create such a unity as this. Unity is to be transcended, it has its source in God, and it is to be transformative. Verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. I'm slightly hesitant to speak about these things. Because people have been using this as an excuse for pursuing and practicing bigotry and bitterness for generations. But let me pause and highlight before you those words. That little phrase. That we would become perfectly one. Become Perfectly one. There have been many attempts at imperfect unity, a unity that's based on the lowest common denominator. Times when gospel distinctives have been swept aside, when, when churches have come together with good motives and with good intentions, but with unhelpful outcomes because truth has been jettisoned to make the accommodation work. Back in the earlier part of this prayer, verse 17. Jesus said, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And truth must be at the center of our pursuit of unity. And with that warning being noted, such unity is something that God's people must passionately pursue. And now there will be always those who, who are purveyors of fear, and they will rant about the threat of a one-world religion, that this will usher in the last days. For example, there's one website I looked up, and it starts off like this. It says, Church Unity, a plan of the devil. We are living in a day of ecumenical propaganda, calling on the churches of the world to amalgamate. Church Unity is moving at a breathtaking pace. Church Unity is moving at a breathtaking pace, the author of those words, hasn't been deported down. We have difficulty getting our Presbyterian congregations to cooperate, never mind reaching out across other denominational divides. Did you notice his statement? Church unity, he says, is a plan of the devil. No, it's not. It's the focus of the prayer of the king and head of the church, Jesus Christ. This is something that God's people have to be 
passionate about it. Our unity is to be transformative. Jesus explains, verse 23, that the world may know that you sent me. Bruce Milne writes, every time we gather together, we either strengthen or weaken the evangelistic appeal of our church by the quality of our relationships with our fellow members. Our desire is that the word of God may become flesh in us and among us. And we have to have this posture to pursue unity in the church, in the congregation, and between congregations and fellowships. All that profess Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. To use the words of Alistair Morris that I heard 30-something years ago, and I've never forgotten them. He said, in these matters, not everything can be done. But everything that can be done must be done. This is Jesus' dying prayer. We dare not resist and work against his purposes. I feel a rebuke in myself. You know, I, I shy away from opportunities to bond with ministers of neighboring fellowships. Be one. Praise Jesus. And secondly, we see his great passion In this prayer, his desire for his people that they would be with him. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me, that is the elect, may be with me. That's the language of love. Thinking back to John 14, that that great proposal, uh, marriage proposal. Where I am to see my glory. Greek word theorosin. To gaze upon, to feast your eyes to fullness upon the beauty of the Son of God. That's what what the believers would desire. That you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. I wonder if you ever stood before a, a beautiful vista. An amazing piece of landscape. You don't have to go far to see one. But maybe you've stood on a shore and looked across at the ocean. Maybe you've stood uh, and watched a waterfall or a mighty river. And, and you just take in the scene and, and you get a little bit of feeling that your eyes are too small to be able to absorb all the beauty on display before you. And Jesus prays that you might be able to spend eternity gazing on his limitless beauty and glory. Throughout the Bible, there is this golden thread, the covenant of grace from beginning to end. This great desire that that God would be the God of his people and his people would be his with him. It culminates in Revelation 21 verse 3 that we read together at the start of our service. John says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Perhaps you know the lovely words of 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. There Paul writes, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with a voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. 
And so we will always be with the Lord. That's the hope. That's the expectation of all whose trust is in Jesus Christ for their salvation. All whose faith rests securely on him. As he turned to the dying thief on the cross in Luke 23, 43, saying, Today you will be with me in paradise. Forget about the paradise. Focus on the be with me. That's what matters. That's Jesus' desire for us, that we would be with him. Shortly we'll sing, and there we'll find our home, our life before the throne. We'll honor him in perfect song where we belong. Jim Packer writes, What shall we do in heaven? Not lounge around, but worship, work, think, and communicate, enjoying activity, beauty, people, and God. First and foremost, however, we shall see and love Jesus, our Savior, Master, and Friend. Have you already caught glimpses of the beauty of Jesus? And because of of these first fruits, you you long, you hunger for more. Examine your heart today and, and question yourself. Is this my greatest desire? This is how I know I'm truly God's child. If I cannot think of anything more satisfying, anything more fulfilling than gazing upon and serving before and worshiping the Savior, that's all there is for me. If that's your heart, then you know that this prayer of Jesus for you has been answered. And for some, there will be a day of of endless delight in his presence. And for some, there will be a day of endless dread. For some have run to the light that they might be saved, and some have run from the light, hidden in the darkness, rejected his forgiving grace. But you and I were made for heaven. Not for hell. And heaven was made for us. Not hell. But each one of us will be where we desire to be. Where we have set our heart. We make our choice. We have declared what will satisfy us. May it be today that with assurance we know that we have chosen Jesus. He's shown himself to us. And we long to see him face to face and serve before his throne forever. Let's pray together.